how's it going everybody welcome to church and other drugs my name is jed how is everybody doing it is a monday it's a sunny beautiful monday over here in louisiana and it is my last week of uh school it's my last week of finals uh i got a psych exam tomorrow and then i'm done for the summer very much looking forward to that um also little teaser here i have some very very uh big news some of you might be privy to this already um i'm gonna wait until i have uh the desperados on to kind of spill the beans but uh big things happening in my life big good things happening that i'm very excited about um but for today's episode uh i've been meaning to do this um and i felt like this was a good time as most of you should know, uh, Dr. Heiser has, has gone to be with the Lord. He has passed away, and he was a huge influence in my life and a ton of you listeners as well. And so I wanted to re-air one of my favorite interviews with him. This was uh, when he came on talking about his book, Angels, and it's just great. It's a He is a... He's just such a wealth of knowledge and a treasure trove of everything good and great and one of the best examples of a Christian that I've met in such a long time. Um, So, enjoy this um, episode and we'll see you on the other side, Dr. Heiser. So back on the show, we have Dr. Michael Heiser. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Very good. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back and, and braving the uh, braving the weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're having typical windstorms here in the Pacific Northwest. So I, I'm, I'm ideally situated where I live to get the worst of it, or so I'm told. <laughs> so. Did you uh, get any of the fires? No. No, okay. we didn't get any of that. Although there were, there were some uh, some fires in Vancouver, um, you know, months ago, and we saw a little bit of that, but not, you know, not in the other, not from nor- northern California. It's just the it worked the other direction. So y'all mainly just get windstorms, and <laughs> we get a lot of wind. There's there's usually like a couple of weeks during a year where, for some reason, it just like blows on this side of the mountains, and you know. It, it's you're you're sort of okay unless it rains at the same time and freezes like it did last year. That was the worst. What what's the it took like it took like thirty power thirty poles down Good night. on the border. Yeah, we had, we didn't have electricity for five days. And and what's so the temperature right now? Oh, we're in the fifties, so it's not very oh, okay. cold. So we're we're not in any danger of an ice storm, but you know the the wind can knock out power. I I drove home. Drove my daughter home a few hours ago, and there were lots of uh, intersections that didn't have power. So yeah, I figured well, here we go. You know? Well, we'll uh, we'll just have faith that'll hold out for at least a little forty-five minutes here. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, well, then let's let's uh, let's dive right in. So you have you wrote a new book that has just come out called "Angels: What the Bible Really Says About God's Heavenly Host." Um, I am about seventy-five pages in. Um, loving it so far. So I guess the first question, why angels? Well, you, you'll notice the, the, the title and the subtitle, that's deliberate. Um, the subtitle is what the Bible really says about them, you know, God's heavenly host. And I did that deliberately because not all members of the heavenly host should be called angels. Uh, so you ask why angels? Well, fundamentally, I think a, a lot of 
a lot of what Christians, you know, have absorbed or think they believe about angels is not very well textually rooted. And this is a good example. Um, you know, we tend to think a term, well, I'll give you one example. You know, the, the myth that angels have wings. You'll never see an angel depicted with wings in the Bible. Um, in fact, it's kind of comical if we take Hebrews 13 seriously, you know, the, the whole verse there, 13.1 about, hey, you better be careful to uh, extend hospitality to strangers because you might be entertaining an angel unawares. Well, if he had wings sticking out of his back, I'd probably yeah. know. <laughs> It'd be pretty obvious. Okay? Yeah. Right. It'd be pretty obvious. You know, if he was glowing or something, you know, I'd probably know. So <laughs> we have these, we have a bit of mythology. We have Christian mythology. And a lot of it comes from, you know, you're, you're 75 pages in. So the first mm -hmm. chapter is about terminology. And that's really where a lot of the, the overstatements or the misstatements come from. Because we tend to think, oh, angels are in the presence of God. You know, we see scenes of angels, you know, like Revelation 4 and 5, you know, around the throne. And then we, we go to Isaiah 6 mentally. Well, they're, you know, the seraphim, you know, they have wings. And the cherubim, you know, Ezekiel 1, they have wings, you know, around the throne of God. So angels have wings. Well, not really. <laughs> Again, because angel, cherub, and seraph, those are all functional terms. They're essentially job descriptions. They don't tell you anything about what a member of the heavenly host is. What they tell you is what a member of the heavenly host does. And so that's why in the first chapter of the book, I go through the, the, the terminology discussion. And, you know, we can drill down into that if you like. But since, since we sort of smash angel and cherub and seraph together, that's where where this idea comes from that angels have wings, but you'll never actually see a verse in the Bible that describes angels with wings. And it, and it, it becomes absurd when you look at verses like Hebrews 13, one, right. Like, what do you mean? Where's <laughs> how could I miss that? <laughs> look at the feathers, you know, <laughs> how could I miss that? So in the, um, so I got a, a, a good little list of questions I'll try to chip away at. So in the, in the broadest definition, so what is the heavenly host? The heavenly host are those intelligent beings, God, God's heavenly children, his supernatural children, um, who assist him. They are his partners in running things the way he wants them run in the spiritual world. So if we want to drill down into the terminology, basically there are three buckets. Okay, there's, there, there are three semantic buckets here. One, one is you have terms used of the members of the heavenly host that describe their nature. In other words, what they are, they're ontological terms, things like spirits, heavenly ones, holy ones. Okay. It, it tells you, you know, some, you know, about their essence, you know, some, in, in some qualitative way. And then the, the next bucket would be, there are terms that describe rank in hierarchy, and this is where you get a term like sons of God. That, that is drawn from ancient Near Eastern royal court verbiage. Uh, and so it's a hierarchical term. It's not just a family term. It's also, a, a, again, a, a workmanship, sort of a status term. As, as sons of the king or relatives of the king, you know, we have certain jobs that others don't. That, that sort of thinking. So it's drawn from the ancient Near Eastern royal court uh, imagery. And then the third bucket is you have terms that describe function or role. And this is where angel, that's the bucket angel actually falls into. It means messenger. Mm -hmm. It's a job description. It, it describes a particular task. And terms like cherub, karuv in Hebrew, saraf, those are terms that were used of throne guardians, respectively. And one is Babylonian in origin, the other one is Egyptian. But they describe the same office, the same function, the same task to protect, you know, the, the, the king in the royal court. You know, in, in, in terms of the spiritual world, what they do is they protect sacred space. They protect God's sacred space from defilement, which is why when humans are brought into the presence of God, they need to be purified. That's their job, okay? 
we don't have any defilement, you know, of, of God's presence, you know, by these these mere mortals, and you know, so on and so forth. So, what I do in the first chapter is go through all that terminology, and then as time goes on, you know, the, the book goes from Old Testament through the Second Temple, you know, intertestamental literature, and on into the New Testament because the New Testament writers are are repurposing both Old Testament stuff and Second Temple stuff, and all. All that's happening in the Second Temple period is people who take the Bible, their Bible, the Old Testament, seriously. They're doing exegesis. They're connecting dots, you know, and some of the, the, the thinking that they, you know, put into that, the conclusions they draw, find their way into the New Testament. So I wanted to go through all the terminology. There are some terminological shifts uh, as things proceed, but, you know, fundamentally, we as moderns, again, we, we get a lot of what we think we know about angels. And you know, frankly, who talks about angels that much anyway? You know, around Christmas time, you get it. Yeah. But we, we get a lot of this stuff inherited to us, handed down to us by church tradition or just pop culture. You know, and so I thought, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have a book that what, what it says and what we say about angels, actually, you, you could trace somewhere in the biblical text. Wouldn't that be nice? And so that's where the idea was born. Yeah, and I I love it. I love it um, because I I think in um, shameless plug of your one of your past books, um, the unseen realm. That's that's where I first was kind of um, introduced to the idea of even um, of Satan being uh, also like a position, like a courtroom position, and, and just this idea of yeah. Um, basically a, a parallel spiritual world of spiritual beings. Um, does there, so if it, I don't know if it's a direct parallel, but does that mean that there are, so the cherubim and all that, they're all a specific assigned job. Does that mean there are also commoner for lack of a better word, angels or, um, yeah, my, my view is that any given member of the heavenly host can be tasked in any way God wants them to be tasked at any given point. I think the, the, the language, the terminology and the metaphors are there to communicate certain things. God is king. If he's a king, well, he probably has a court. And the court has different roles. There's hierarchy in the court. It's organized. It's not haphazard. It's not like Keystone Cops. You know, it's not the office. <laughs> All right? It, you know, it has, it has coherence and order. Uh, you know, it, it's God runs a tight ship, you know, that, that sort of thing. So it's designed to communicate order and hierarchy and rank and position, you know, all those things. But, but we also get family language used, you know, of the members of the heavenly host, you know, where God does refer to some as the sons of God. He, you know, refers to, you know, he's the creator of all things, you know, in heaven and earth. So, you know, we, we get this, this, father, you know, sense because of, of the point of origin being God, you know, all the, <clears throat> all of this language, you know, is important. It, it just tells us certain things about the way God looks at his, you know, supernatural children. And that becomes an analogy. And this is more unseen realm. Uh, but <clears throat> in unseen realm, I wanted to communicate the, the notion that the more we know about the supernatural world, the more we'll be able to appreciate how God looks at us because the terminology maps over to human believers and the church, you know, in, in various ways. Um, so, you know, what angels is is sort of a drill down into, you know, the very narrow topic of angels. And by the way, the book is just about the good guys. Uh, there, there's going to be a follow-up book on, you know, the powers of darkness. Oh, uh, notice awesome. I don't, I don't call them all demons because they're not Okay, uh, the powers of darkness. So that that one's going to be demons subtitle. What the Bible really says about the powers of darkness. So that that's going to it's already done. It's going to be out sometime in 2019. But awesome. I wanted a book where the good guys get some stage time, you know, because everybody gravitates, you know, toward, <laughs> you know, the macabre, you know. Yeah, it's, it's very uh, it's very alluring for some reason. Um, well, and it's well and that's why I was glad your book came out cuz I cuz I would say it's 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 almost you know if, if maybe if there were more resources out there about it, it you know it would be easier to to get into now there aren't a whole lot there there it's, aren't it's, it, i mean most of what you see published on angels comes from some sort of 
extreme charismatic sort of thing or new age yes, context, yes. you know, yes. where it's all about my experience with angels or how to command angels or something weird like that. Yeah. Lots of mediums or people that have gotten like yeah. direct quote, uh, direct revelation from angels. So the, the evil ones and the good ones. So they're all, they're all under the blanket of, uh, Elohim. Is that correct? Yeah, in, in Unseen Realm, you know, I, I spend more time on this, but Elohim is a, again, a term that describes the nature of a being. So it would be in the first bucket. It describes ontologically what <clears throat> a member of the heavenly host is, and that is Elohim really refers to a member of the disembodied spiritual world. Well, all the members of the heavenly host, by definition, are disembodied members of the spiritual world. So... You know, Elohim is is kind of a an umbrella term or a blanket term or a really generic kind of term. Um, almost you know, like hu- human for us. Almost like that. Yep. Okay. You know that by definition, that's what we are ontologically. Uh, and, and in the book, I you know I, I try to you know do some some analogizing with with terms. You know, like like I could be a human, I can be a man, I can be a dad, I can be a you know a scholar, I can be a teacher, I can be you know, a fan, if I'm talking about sports. I mean, there, there's not any number of things I can be, but they're not all in the same semantic bucket. They have categories. And we don't often, you know, because probably we have better things to do, <laughs> we don't sit there on our chairs <laughs> and think about the semantics of the heavenly host, but, you know, or the semantics of anything, you know, but, but that's the way language operates. And, you know, we need to think a little bit more carefully about it, you know, when it comes to, you know, this, this sort of subject matter. So was there anything in doing your research for this? Was there anything that, um, kind of surprised you or anything new that you learned or kind of, uh, upended your world at all or anything? I I wouldn't say upended, but yeah, I learned, I learned some things, uh, going through it. Uh, let me give you two examples. So, you know, the whole, I, I do a lot of interviews. I mean, I've, it seems like I've done endless interviews, you know, on, on this. And the one question that's asked all the time, uh, and here I am bringing it up, <laughs> is, is guardian angels. Oh, okay? my God. I have that written down. So, <laughs> okay. So, see, well, here, you, you know, you're you no different than me. anybody else. Yeah. There, there go. you go. Now, the, the, the launching point for that is typically like Matthew 18:10. Yep. Where they're, they're trying to bring, you know, the people are bringing children to Jesus. And the disciples are like, don't bother him, you know. And, and he's like, look, you know, don't do that. And, and you know, he, he goes off on this this line about, you know, the little ones. And he says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, the word guard and guardian, that never shows up there. But this, this is, again, sort of the launching point for this idea. So I get asked all the time, are there guardian angels? And it, I, my answer to that is, well, it depends on what you mean by guardian, okay? Because it's certainly not true that we all have angels assigned to us that protect us from harm and suffering and evil. That's just contrary to the human experience of everyone. So that isn't what Jesus is talking about. But if you actually sort of trace the idea, this whole thing about seeing the face of my Father in heaven, that is a biblical idea. And it goes back into the Old Testament. <clears throat> For instance, Job, in one of his conversations with um, you know, one of his miserable friends, you know, one of the guy says to Job, to which of the holy ones are you going to plead your cause? It's Job 5, I believe, verse 1. So, so there was this notion, This is, and it's a very broad ancient Near Eastern notion, that, that there were supernatural beings, in this case, you know, holy ones. Again, just a generic term there. That they plead your cause before God. In other words, they're, they're watching you, and you know, they have some sort of mediatorial or advocacy role on your behalf. And, and this is also tied into the, the, the heavenly books idea. You know, on the Naked Bible podcast, we did a whole episode on this. I don't remember which one it was, but the, we're familiar with the book of life. There's actually half a dozen books, you know, quote unquote books, that are kept by God and the members of his heavenly host. 
Again, this the idea that was was that members of the, the supernatural beings were like scribes. You know, they're recording everything that goes on for the gods, or in this case, for God. And the point of the metaphor isn't you know, that, that God, the God of the Bible has a really bad memory, like he has Alzheimer's or something, you know, the, the, the no, the, the point of the metaphor is that God doesn't miss anything okay. and that he tasks the, the members of his heavenly host with keeping watch over us. And they do report to him, you know, and he, he will send them, you know, to either give a message. In some cases there, it's actually an explanation of what's happening to the person. I mean, there, there's all, you know, there are a number of things that, 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 the advocacy can entail. But here's what I learned about that. I was familiar with all of that, having done, you know, other research in the episode on, on the heavenly books and all that. But what I what I noticed was, you know, this reference here in, in the Gospels, this is Matthew 18. And Jesus is still talking in these terms about, you know, members of the heavenly host. But all of that changes. You never see advocacy language after the resurrection. In fact, you see the, the mediator language and the advocate terminology applied only to Jesus after that point. So I thought that was really that an interesting, interesting observation. Here's the, and here's the second one. You know, angels are, are always in the Old Testament described in ways that, that you can't distinguish them from people. And this is consistent in the New Testament except for two places. There are only two occasions where there's anything visible about this man, some, some man that a, per, a biblical character sees that would give, give away the idea that, you know, this isn't a normal guy. You know, usually they have to do something for people to sort of wake up, you know, like the, the two angels in, in Sodom with Lot. You know, when they strike the city blind, Lot's bright enough to say, well, I guess they're not normal like me because I can't do that. Uh, you know, but usually, usually it's they do something spectacular and otherworldly. But in, in there are two cases in the New Testament where that's not the case, and it is visible. And the two are the announcement of the birth of the Messiah and the post-resurrection tomb episode. Because they, they, have, they have bright white clothing. They're, they're, there's something about their clothing, something luminous, the, the glory of God, you know, like, reflecting off them or with them or something like that. Those are the only two instances. And you have to ask yourself, well, why, why would those two be the exceptions? And it's because the, the, the messengers there, I mean, think about it. They want the people who are listening to what they're saying know that they have heavenly authority behind right. them. This is not just a normal conversation with a normal dude. <laughs> Okay, I better listen up, I, and, and what I'm being told, I better take seriously because this isn't a normal guy. This is something supernatural. So you get it again with the announcement of the birth, and when you know when you have the tomb episodes. I, to me, that that's very telling. That on, on those two occasions, it's like God knows that they're going to need to be convinced out of the gate. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there is no time to waste here. Yeah. We're not going to, we're not going to like pretend that everything's normal and then poof, you know, Hey, guess what? We were angels. You know, we're not doing that here. <laughs> okay. We're not doing that here. They need to know out of the gate that, that, that this has authority. Okay. This is the truth. You know, God himself is intervening in these two occasions. So, you know, it was just a pattern I had not noticed before. So I thought that was kind of cool. So yeah, I, I picked up things as I went went through this so does it kind of so with your first little revelation does it kind of imply that since um jesus was resurrected that kind of the whole plan shifted and it operates in a new way yeah i i think so that that now we have jesus becomes the great high priest you know he, he sits down at the right hand of god there's a reason why he is the sole intercessor now because of his sacrifice and so since, since we've, we've had this playing out of salvation history, he becomes not only the central point, but he's the only focus. He's the one. Because of what he did, we now have access to God, Hebrews 4. We can come boldly to the throne of grace ourselves. Right. We don't need a priesthood. We don't need, even need angels. We don't need holy ones anymore. We need him. That's it. And I, again, I think there, it's, a, it's a really significant point, and it is a shift. 
in understanding. Now, now this isn't the only thing that members of the heavenly host were doing. They still have things that they do. We still have Hebrews 13 that, hey, you know, you better entertain strangers, you know, because you never know. You know, we still have that. They're, they're still active. They're still doing things. They're just not doing those jobs anymore. Did, did you, have you come across anyone with those type of like eyewitness stories? Did you like read into any kind of accounts or anything like that, like modern day accounts or even I, recent historical accounts? No, because I, I wanted this to be a, a, a biblically based book, okay. you know, uh, so I didn't bother with any of that. But having said that, <clears throat> I mean, I, I do have friends. Uh, some of them are in the ministry that have had episodes, you know, what, what we would typically today call guardian angel stories, where they're in a jam, they're out in the middle of the road somewhere at night, nobody's around, and, you know, like somebody pulls up or pops out of a house or pops out of nowhere and says, you know, hey, what what's the problem? Lends them a hand and then the person goes to thank them and they're gone. You know, I mean, mm. I, I know people who have had those sorts of incidents and they don't have any reason to lie to me. They're not, they're not you know, they're not uh, selling books about it. They don't have TV shows. You know? Right. <laughs> they're, they're not making a buck off it. It's like, hey, I, that's just what happened. You know, and I, I think the, that we have biblical precedent for those sorts of episodes. Um, but I didn't, I didn't go, you know, researching any to make them part of the book. Sure. Sure. Um, where, so the, so the angel of the Lord, that was the other, Mm -hmm. I will be the first to admit that is a heady concept. And I was, uh, if you could kind of break down, um, what Mm -hmm. you were defining that as yeah i think the angel of the lord is the second person of the trinity come as a man in the old testament as in the holy spirit or well we we have to use we have to use the terms that are given to us so you know you know in the old testament we don't have words like son Okay, like God the Son. We do get it in the New Testament. So if you want to use the word Son, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, the Son is, is distinct from the Spirit. If you want to you know, go into the Old Testament, like an unseen realm, th- this is why in the unseen realm I talk about the, the two Yahwehs. Because mm-hmm. there are two Yahweh figures. There's the transcendent, invisible Yahweh, and then there's Yahweh come as a man. Sometimes they're both in the same scene. Sometimes they're not, you know, sometimes one speaks of the other in the third person, you know, it's just, that's just the way it is. So I, we, we don't really have terribly convenient vocabulary. It, it doesn't really conform well to labels. Uh, it's not the incarnation though, because that's not, you know, in the Old Testament, God can show up as a man, but that doesn't mean he was born of a woman. So, you know, that you're dealing with something different uh, in the New Testament. To me, it, it sort of ups the ante, if you will. But when you look at this particular angel, again, I, 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 you know, I, I spent a, a good bit of time on this in Unseen Realm as well. And then, of course, you know, drilling down here. But, you know, what I'm going to say is sort of a mix of the two books. But you have God as man figures in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's the word of the Lord. Okay, sometimes that's the phrase. Where the word of the Lord is referred to as Yahweh, but has, comes in the form of a man. He's described as standing. You know, look, if it was invisible, you can't use a word like standing. How would you know? Okay, you don't, you don't, you don't even see something invisible, but, it, but it's absurd to, to say, hey, that invisible thing over there is standing. Well, that, that's just ridiculous. You know, right, you, right. you can't use language like that. So you, you have this anthropomorphic, you know, presence of Yahweh. Sometimes he's referred to as the word. Sometimes it's the angel. Now, the angel really, you know, sort of comes from Exodus 23, where God tells Moses, I'm going to send an angel before you to, you know, guide you into the, into the promised land. You better, better listen to him because he's not going to pardon your transgressions because my name is in him. And that phrase, my name is in him, takes us into the Old Testament name theology, where the Hebrew term Hashem, the name, is another way of referring to Yahweh, to God himself. So in Unseen Realm, I go through the name theology. I don't really bother too much in in the angel's book. But what it amounts to is when God tells Moses, hey, my name is in that angel, 
So listen up. He's saying, I'm in that angel. He's me, but I'm still here. I'm me, but I'm him. You know, it's just this, Ooh. it's this Godhead kind of language. Um, you know, so, so we, we get this. And, and the angel of the Lord happens to be, again, that phrase happens to be this same figure. How do we know? Well, because this, it's only that one special angel that is ever united to or fused with Yahweh himself. You go to Genesis 48. Jacob's blessing of, of Joseph's children. If we actually read his prayer in verses 15 and 16, he says, may the God who, you know, protected me all my life, may the God who, you know, kept me from harm. And then the third stanza of the prayer you accept, you expect, may the God who did something else, you know, bless the boys. But that's not what you get. You get may the angel, hmm. right? So, and the kicker is bless the boys. It, in Hebrew, it's grammatically singular. So you can't translate it, may they bless the boys. It's may he bless the boys. Well, who does Jacob want to bless the boys? God or the angel? And the answer is yes. Okay, it doesn't matter. You know, you can ask the same question. Who, who, who brought the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land? If you actually look it up, sometimes it's Elohim, God. Sometimes it's Yahweh, the divine name. Sometimes it's Panim, the presence. Deuteronomy 4, you have that. And other times it's the angel. Well, is, I'm confused, Mike. You know, who, who brought them to, you know, to the promised land? Was it God? Was it Yahweh? Was it the presence? Or was it the angel? And the answer is yes. And is this the same uh, one that killed the firstborn? No, that, that is the destroyer. And okay. in, in Unseen Realm, I, I, I talk about that. I think there's a little bit of a... I, I don't... I don't it's kind of a it's kind of a maybe. You know, you, okay. you can go either way because the angel of the Lord does act as a destroying agent, like in, in, in the episode with David in the census. So it may be that same individual, you know, in, in that passage. You know, so God, you know, shows up in the form of an angel to render judgment. How is that different than God being invisible and rendering judgment? People still die. The evil sure. still gets judged. You know, so on, on one level, I, I understand why why the question gets asked because it's it's kind of a curiosity. But on the other hand, the the end result is the same. <laughs> you know, the the yeah, agent yeah, is the same. Sure. The outcome's the same. You know, all that kind of stuff. But it, it's interesting that now now that we we rabbit trailed into the David thing because, you know, you you get this connection between the angel, angel of the Lord, and again. The one, the angel, same angel who took them into Egypt, the same angel who's referred to as Elohim and a man, you know, that Jacob wrestles with. All these things are interconnected. So when you get to Joshua 5, Joshua encounters the, the Tsar, the prince, or the, as some translations have, the captain of the Lord's host. And you know, I argue in the book, both books actually, that this is the angel of the Lord. And you say, well, how do you know? Because angel of the Lord, that phrase doesn't show up in Joshua 5, and it does not. What does show up is, is the phrase, withdrawn sword in his hand. That's very rare. It occurs only two other places. Exactly. Word for word, syllable for syllable in, in Hebrew. The two places are Numbers 22, where it is the angel of the Lord, explicitly identified, and the census judgment you know, with, with David. Both places, the angel of the Lord is explicitly identified with drawn sword in his hand. And so I think that's what we're dealing with in Joshua 5. Plus, the, the captain of the Lord's host says to Joshua, take your shoes off because the place where you're standing is holy ground. That takes us back to the burning bush. And who's in the bush? If you read Exodus 3, God and yeah. the angel. Again, all of these things, you know, correlate. And, and work, you know, hand in hand, if you will, you know, to present us a, a, a picture of, you know, we have the invisible Yahweh in the Old Testament, transcendent, omnipresent, all that kind of stuff. And then you have God showing up as, as a human on occasion uh, to, to do cert certain things or say certain things, deliver messages, you know, what, whatever it is. But that particular angel is identified in various ways with or as Yahweh himself. They are the same, but yet they're different. And so it, I don't do this in angels, but uh, in Unseen Realm, I talk about this being kind of the, the beginning template, the framework for Godhead language 
that you're going to see later in the New Testament. And we actually see it before the New Testament. The intertestamental period, they're, they're discussing this all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can throw the Spirit in there because once you know how this works with you know, the, the two Yahwehs, sometimes you'll, you'll see things about the two Yahwehs in a passage and then the Spirit will, will be included in the picture or in the scene or in the discussion. Uh, and again, I don't want to go too far afield here, but this is actually where Trinitarianism comes from. It doesn't come from formulaic language in the New Testament, even though that's helpful, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all that. But this is actually where it comes from. Because if you think about the Old Testament, you have the invisible Yahweh, and then the, the second Yahweh is, is Yahweh as a man. Okay, so second Yahweh is but isn't, you know, Yahweh. They're the same, but yet they're different. And if you if you look at the 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 human one, and you tran- you move over to the New Testament, well, all the things that are said about the angel character or the word, okay, or you know some of these other titles, the name, the cloud rider, which we didn't even get into, all of these things are attached to Jesus. And that that's very deliberate because, you know, the New Testament writers are going to identify Jesus with God and. In so doing, they identify the human, the incarnate, you know, Jesus with this pre-incarnate human, you know, form of Yahweh. And that becomes significant because then Jesus is but isn't God. He is God, but he's not the Father. You know, all these ways we struggle to talk about the relationship between Jesus and God. But what's really fascinating is when you get to the Spirit in the New Testament, Spirit of God, Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of Christ are interchanged in four or five passages. There's two passages where Paul said, Paul refers to Jesus as the Lord, who is the Spirit. So just as Jesus is but isn't the Father, the Spirit is but isn't Jesus. Again, this is where Trinitarian thinking you know, derives from. And, and the way we typically talk about it is because of what happens in church history as you know, important figures you know, church fathers are trying to look at the data of the, of the of the scriptures. They're looking at the data of the text, and they're and they're struggling with how to articulate it. And oftentimes, they articulate it in response to something that's going on in the church. You know, that uh, somebody comes up with an idea and they noodle that for a while. No, no, we don't think that's right. So we need now we need to you know, say what we do think in a certain way to respond to this guy over here. And, and out of that, you know, comes the creeds and things like that. So, you know, the, the data for the, the formulation of a doctrine like the Trinity, the, the, the data are there in the text. It's just, you know, the biblical writers don't necessarily use the same verbiage as a church father would because they come from different contexts and they're, they're thinking out loud, so to speak, uh, you know, for different reasons, you know, trying to accomplish different things. But the data are there. It was a long rabbit trail. Sorry for that. But. No, 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 no. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a, a quick aside question because it just it makes me feel woefully unqualified to read the Bible. And and the question is just like so plain layman just readings of the Bible like is that non effective? Is, is it is it you such, are you are not unqualified. To read the Bible, it, okay. Let me let me tell you a little story. <laughs> I'm I'm all ears. <laughs> okay. When I became a Christian, I was 16 years old. I knew nothing. Here's what I knew. Again, I, I came to the Lord through the, you know, through a friend of mine. We were nine years old. That was my first exposure to the gospel. Uh, single mom, four kids. Two, two of them had cystic fibrosis. To say they struggled mightily would be an under understatement. But it was their home that I first heard the gospel. And I literally knew nothing. I had heard of Noah. I had heard of Adam and Eve and I had heard of Jesus. And that was it. I was tapped at the names. I knew nothing. So what's the difference between me then and me now? And the answer I like to put it this way is five minutes a day. Okay, what, what I am, I'm, I'm not who I am because I'm, you know, brilliant or blessed or, you know, I am, I am the cumulative effect of learning something every day. So what I tell people is learn something every day, put five or 10 minutes into it. 
Okay, if you do that at the end of the year, you're going to have 365 new things. And the year after that, it's 365 more. You you will be the, you know, it's cumulative. What What's missing with a lot of people, we have a lot of people in church that have a lot of data under their belt. What they don't have is they don't have a framework into which it fits. They, they're, they're unable to see the how the points, the data points interconnect and how they repurpose each other and you know feed off each other. They don't, that's what's missing. And that's what I actually tried to do in Unseen Realm, which uh, if you recall, the, I think it was the first or second chapter, I talk about building the, the mosaic mm-hmm. you know, for people. That's what Unseen Realm is. Unseen Realm is not the, the end point for everybody's Bible study. It is just it is exactly what I said it was in the introduction. It's the beginning point. I will give you the lay of the land. Okay, I, I will I will give you you know the, the connection points. I'll give you the lay of the land so that if, if you understand the material there, you will never be able to read your Bible the same way again. And that's a good thing because you will start to see interconnections. Because biblical writers repurpose each other's content all the time. So you can learn how to trace an idea through the text. It's not rocket science. You know, I wish it were because then I'd feel smart, all right? It is not rocket science. It's close reading. You know what it is? It's what you do in high school. Yeah. In, in, in English lit class. It's literary analysis, if you want a fancy term for it. It's close reading of the text and asking good questions about what you're reading. There, you know, I've, I've exposed myself. You know, that, <laughs> that's all. I know your secrets. It is. Yeah, it, it, again, it, it's all it is. So anyone, you know, with, you know, who's, you know, I guess you know, has, has a reasonable, you know, facility with, with reading you know, and, and that can be learned as well. But anyone can learn to read something closely and probe it and ask good questions. You know, sometimes we're afraid to ask questions of the Bible. Yeah. You know, sometimes we just don't know what questions are good questions, you know. And, th- and well, that it, just, that that can be learned by listening to other people and reading books. You know, you, you get an idea of what, what questions to ask. And so that that's, if there's a goal to what I do, that's the goal, you know, to help people do that. That's, yeah. And, and, and a lot of it has been unlearning the idea of questioning is bad, you know, just, you know. Right. You're, it lack, is a huge step, yeah. right? And so you are not unqualified, and, and nobody listening to this is unqualified. What you are is underexposed. You might be a little scared. You might be a little skittish. Um, you, you may never have been you know, provoked or prompted or, or given permission to read the Bible critically, you know, and critically in, in a good sense. You're just asking questions of it. The Bible will be okay. It'll still be there when you're done asking your questions. It, it's not gonna. You're not gonna destroy it. I don't want to hurt you its know? feelings, though. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's still gonna be there at the end of the day. So this is our task. Our task is to is to read closely, ask good questions. You know, and and again, it, it's really helpful. It's another you know thing that's behind unseen realm is when when we read, one of the questions we need to ask is well. Were the biblical writers thinking the same way that I do? Mm. You know, I mean, good grief. They lived thousands of years ago. Did they look at the world the way I do? Because I can't figure out what in the world this guy's talking about. Maybe it's because his worldview is quite different than mine. You know, and, and how, would I, how would I understand how he thinks about, you know, XYZ subject? Okay, that's the right question to ask. And then it's just a matter of, becoming aware of resources that will help you answer that question. Bible study should be iterative, okay? It, it should be probative and iterative. And we, we, just, we just don't train people to do that. We train people to be passive. We train yeah. people to think that Bible reading is Bible study. And it only becomes study when we start to read closely and, and we make it, you know, a probative experience, you know, when we're, we're asking questions about the text. And, and that's okay. You know, the Bible can handle that. God's happy when we're thinking about Scripture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? that's true. So in kind of um, 
uh, wrapping it up here, what what role do you think, like what role and how important do you think angels, the subject, are in our modern everyday life? I think in our, in our modern life, that you know, it's not very important at all. Most people don't give it the time of day. When it, when it comes to understanding how God perceives and looks at us, the way he thinks about us, then I think it becomes quite important because a lot of what the Bible says about, if I can use this somewhat awkward term, angelology, okay, mm-hmm. a lot of that maps over to the way God looks at his human family, his goals for them as his children and as his partners, as his imagers, again, the, the, the term I use in unseen realm, um, a lot of it maps over. And, and that becomes important because it, it, it becomes a new way to think about who we are, our identity, and our mission. We, we can gain, you know, some traction. You know, we, we, can, we can find other trajectories for, you know, thinking about God's relationship to us and our relationship to God if we, you know, understand how this worked with his first family, you know, the, his supernatural children. And if we realize things like, you know, God wanted us all together. You know, we were, we were actually created, you know, fit for sacred space. That was God's original intention. And, and you know what? God, God's had rebellions in that world, too. You know, he's lost. You know, some of the sons of God, you know, re- rebelled. And isn't it kind of cool that, that the, the, the phrase sons of God in the New Testament is never used of, of supernatural beings. It's only used of, of us, of Christians. Why is that? Could that mean something? And, and what's this talk about us, you know, ruling with Jesus over the nations and judging angels? I mean, th- these are these are identity and mission questions that are that are inextricably linked to the subject of angelology that most Christians have never been exposed to at all, and it really matters again for for getting a richer, fuller understanding of of who we are and what our destiny is, and you know these these big picture questions that everybody has. Are, are they? Uh, and so are they part of the new creation to come? I think, I think they are. Um, again, and I answer it that way because the new creation is an Edenic, you know, gets, gets described in Edenic terms. And when heaven came to earth in Eden, where God is his host, his entourage, you know, his family is, it's his house, you know, in unseen realm, I talk about how Eden is God's abode and, you know, all the, the ancient Near Eastern, you know, vocabulary and motifs that, that communicate uh, where the gods, or in, in Israel's case, where God lives. And where God lives, his family is with him. And initially in Eden, God intended that his heavenly supernatural family and his earthly human family, his embodied family, live in the same place under the same roof and enjoy each other and, and partner with him and serve him together. So I think if we're going to have, if we're going to take scripture's description of the new earth, you know, which, which I view as, as the final state, uh, as a reset button, so God gets what he wants originally in Eden, but now it's global. Yeah, I think they're going to be there. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for, for coming back on. Um, you can find uh, angels on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. I'm assuming. Yep. And um, yep. what's your uh, website again? The my homepage is drmsh.com, like Doctor Dr and my initials drmsh.com, and you know I have the Naked Bible Podcast too. That's just nakedbiblepodcast.com. So those are the two places you'll find and me most. Then my favorite Sitchin was wrong. <laughs> Sitchin is wrong. Yeah, that's that's uh, <laughs> my personal favorite. I recommend yep. it. Um, yeah, go. and I, I hope you'll uh, come back on when uh, Demons comes out. I, I always yeah. enjoy our talks. Um, Absolutely. So thank you very much, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you next time. Yep. Thanks. Bye.